Welcome, friends. You are listening to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where you get witty and charming conversation about the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers of our time. If you're listening on the radio, you're listening at 11 a.m. on Fridays on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And if not, you're listening for free wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcast, or you can search for Conversations with Consequences on any podcast app. We are absolutely everywhere. Be sure to also leave us a rating and a review while you're there, because it really helps people find our show. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm in D.C. today. I flew up for the show. Um, We have a very special guest here in studio. And before that, I also want to introduce my uh, good friend and colleague at the Catholic Association. I call her our legal eagle because she's our legal advisor. And her name is Andrea picciotti Bayer. Good morning, Andrea. Good morning, Gracie. Washington is always made so much better when you come oh, flying, thank you. flying to grace us with your well, presence. I'm very fortunate because the flights somehow are always uneventful. I fly in, I fly out. Nothing bad ever happens to me. That's very good. Yeah, we don't want anything bad happening to you. Steve would kill me. Yeah, and you know by bad I mean like those horrible layovers in places like Charlotte, North Carolina. Don't, which I've only ever visited. Do by, not by alienate plane. our great listenership in Charlotte. I don't mean. I don't mean to throw rocks. Yeah, no, no. I don't mean to throw rocks at Charlotte. I think you were talking about turbulence. You don't want any turbulence. No, I was. I was remembering a horrible night one time on on some very very hard uh, seats in the the Charlotte airport. But that's neither here nor there. What were you saying? I was just thinking. I haven't been flying a lot since um, we moved back to the U.S. But I, it's so easy to fly here. When we were living in in South America, which crosses a lot of crosswinds with the Andes, um, there's so much incredible turbulence that there's a great tradition that when you land, the entire plane erupts in applause. Oh. (laughs) It's really kind of nice. And everybody, when we take off, everybody crosses themselves, right? Yeah. No, you need to because you never know. It could be your last. I always cross myself (laughs) when we take off. And whenever I see anyone around us crossing, they're usually Latin Americans like me, you know, crossing themselves. We have that habit of crossing ourselves at any any very dangerous uh, enterprises, yeah, like taking off it. into the air. I guess it's not dangerous, but it sure feels dangerous. <laughs> now we're alienating the pilots of America. No, they have it all under control. But it is great to have you here, and I'm so happy that we were able to organize um, this guest that we have, and, and I really think it's going to help answer a lot of questions that both you and I have had and a lot of other of our listeners. Yeah, so we, you know, we like regular Catholics everywhere. We, we exist on, on the parish level uh, we're very involved, um, you know, we're manos a la masa, like we say in Spanish. We say our hands are in the dough, right? We're we're getting stuff done and, and we're working hard at being good Catholics on the ground um, and being present to our brothers and sisters and all that. But uh, there's a lot of, go- lot of stuff going on in the church at higher levels, which uh, it can be hard when you're reading the news media, especially in the non-Catholic media, mm-hmm. trying to get a, a grasp. Like the church. <laughs> right? <laughs> You're trying to get a grasp of what's going on. For I, for one, I'm always fielding. People think that people in my family and my friends, they think I'm some sort of expert. You are an expert. And I, I'm always fielding frantic emails from my aunt this and my tia that. They're like, what's going on? What's the Pachamama? And what is this? And what's the <laughs> other thing? After the Amazonian Synod. So I, that's why we invited Matthew Bunsen to come and talk to us. And he is the executive editor of EWTN News. Um, so he's in on it. He's in on every synod. He's yeah. everywhere you want to, everywhere you, the church is happening, he's there um, paying attention and then, and then reporting on it. 
He's also um, he's at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and he's an author of more than 50 books and a widely respected Catholic professor and a theologian. Well, and I, I respect Matthew a lot. I think that he's measured, he's um, thoughtful, he's analytical, and above all, he's a, a faithful Catholic. Well, let's stop talking about him in front of his face. <laughs> Matthew Bunsen, thank you for joining us today on Conversations with Consequences. Oh, it's a joy to be with you. It's uh, uh, one of my favorite shows to listen to. Oh, how lovely of you to say that. <laughs> well, this is going to be our best show ever then, since we have such a professional with us today. Well, no, I, heard, I heard George Weigel not too long ago, so that, that's established something of a gold standard. Okay, but well, I really admire George Weigel, but I feel like you and I are friends. I we can't are. really say that about George Weigel, but maybe in the future. Oh, I'm totally best friends with George Weigel now. Oh, really? (laughs) You know, he's coming to Miami in a couple weeks, and uh, I'm going to go listen to him, and I'm going to see if he'll have dinner with my husband and I and and the people that invited him who are mutual friends. So maybe I'll be friends with George Weigel soon. I bet you will. I think he'll love you, (laughs) just like I love you, and Matthew too. Well, so we invited Matthew to talk to us today because he, as the executive editor of EWTN News, he attends all these high-level church meetings that— I think for regular Catholics, I consider myself a regular Catholic, um, a lot, there's a lot going on at, at these levels, at these high levels between the bishops and at Rome and things, um, things called syn- synods, which can be a little confusing. And um, as regular Catholics, we see, you know, sort of what's downstream of that in the media, and it, and it can be pretty confusing. Well, your, your use of the term downstream is very apt because I think there is a stream of information uh, that flows out of synods, uh, but very often by the time it reaches average Catholics, uh, you have a variety of filters, uh, a lot of ideological mm-hmm. perspectives, a lot of bias in the media. And so if you're deriving most of your news just from secular media, uh, this is a real problem for the average Catholics. And to be fair, there are a lot of outlets in Catholic media too that have their own biases and slants. And their interpretations of a lot of the things that are happening in Rome, in particular during a synod, uh, can be very confusing and very alarming to Catholics. Matthew, I think I mentioned this when we were getting into the studio that the Amazon synod that uh, just recently ended um, at the end of October was a a source of great confusion. I felt like I had Catholic whiplash. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and a lot of the the folks that I know, just friends— were asking what's going on, and I was happy to pass on to them links that EWTN uh, put together. You were leading the charge on that to kind of give a, a synopsis every day at the end. But maybe we could start off with the million-dollar answer of um, to the question, "What's a synod?" <laughs> Start at the basics. Well, that's one of those. It, it kind of depends on who you ask now. And, and I, I say that because um, you go all the way back to the Second Vatican Council in 1965, and a request had emerged out of the Second Vatican Council to Pope Paul VI that the work of the bishops in the council now, that's an ecumenical council, which is the most solemn gathering of bishops from all over the world uh, they wanted it in a way to try to continue. Uh, in at least in an advisory capacity. And it was for that reason that Pope Paul VI established what became the Synod of Bishops. And what that is is uh, a gathering of representatives of bishops from all over the world uh, to meet on certain topics and issues. Now, historically, uh, you have different types of synods. There's the ordinary, which is about every two years, on pre-selected topics that are of great importance to the church. Then you also have extraordinary synods, 
uh, where a crisis emerges and, and the pope wants to bring the hmm. bishops together. But then you also have regional synods, and we've had a number of those in the history of the Synod of Bishops, now stretching back over 50 years. We've had special regional synods, for example, on Africa. We've had two of those. We even had one on uh, the Netherlands uh, yeah. some time ago. Interesting. Essentially to try to analyze what went so horribly wrong with the church in the Netherlands. Yeah. The Dutch church, as you know, if you go all the way back to the 70s with the so-called Dutch catechism, which was riddled with errors in with content, theology, and spirituality. So it was trying to fix that. Uh, but then, in this case, we had the Amazonian Synod. Wait, Matthew, before you get to Amaz- the Amazon, the, fa- <laughs> the, the Synod on the Family, what kind of Synod was that? Well, we had two. We had the Ordinary Synod on the Family, and uh-huh. then we had an Extraordinary Synod on the Family. Uh, that's ba- why, like that's why we back. had two. We had one uh-huh. in 2014 and one in 2015. You see, I should know that. I was actually there, yeah. and I didn't know what kind of Synod it was. <laughs> the term Synod— I was paying attention, I promise. <laughs> well, and, and this is when you asked me, what is a Synod? I said, well, it sort of depends on who you ask, because uh, traditionally the, the, the word Synod itself just means assembly mm-hmm. or council. And a synod, though, also has, uh, especially in this pontificate, as as Pope Francis likes to describe it, a synod is this idea of walking together. Hence the term that we hear a lot, uh, especially over the last two years or so, synodality, Mm -hmm. which is this idea of bishops coming together and walking together. Uh, We always uh, add in there, because Pope Francis does, being receptive to the work of the Spirit as you're walking. Mm -hmm. So this is a classic imagery from Pope Francis of this idea of walking together, of accompaniment and, and listening to the Spirit. I think regular Catholics, though, tend to think of synods as a democratic process. Like we're going to get all the big, you know, the princes of hands. the church together. What do you think? And we're going to make all these big decisions and, and whoever has the biggest voting block wins. Is that true? <laughs> that can't be true, right? No, this it's is not. <laughs> and, and, and what's funny is that, uh, that that's a, a very valid perception that people have that they hear about. Uh, that the bishops are going to vote, uh, for mm-hmm. example, you heard during the, the Amazonian Synod, the bishops are going to vote on whether a priest can marry, mm-hmm. or they're going to vote on whether the church should have deaconesses. And Pope Francis, at the very opening of the Synod, uh, and I know because I was there, uh, made the point, he said, this is not a parliament. Mm-hmm. There isn't voting here. Uh, the Synod has only one function, and that is to bring together the bishops of the world to advise the pope on matters of importance. Now, Matthew, it's the Synod on the Amazon is kind of interesting, I thought, because for many reasons. But one is that it's it's a little not traditional in that it's regional and thematic. Am I getting that right? That it's that's um, right. Okay, so maybe you could explain what was the original call? What was the charge? Why did why was the Amazon and the issues? raised in the Synod? Well, you can go back actually five years uh, to the first discussions about uh, that some sort of a regional synod or gathering of bishops was needed uh, to discuss the immense pastoral, geographical, ecological problems facing the Amazon. So it it wasn't a shock that Pope Francis, uh, who is from Latin America, as Mm -hmm. we know, from South America, was also heavily involved in what's called SALAM, which is the Latin American Bishops' Conference, that dealt with and continues to deal with so many of these pastoral issues that are facing the Amazonian region. Remember, we're talking about millions of square miles. We're talking about nine different countries that Mm -hmm. are part of the Amazonian region. Uh, But also then, uh, what are the ways forward for the church in evangelizing there? So that's where you combine sort of the reality of the Amazonian region with the pastoral challenges and demands 
there. So you end up with the theme of trying to understand the Amazon, but also as the, the theme stressed, finding new paths for the church there. And I think it was that term, uh, new paths, that some mm-hmm. people found a little alarming. Well, and wasn't there also kind of an additional thematic concern about our relationship with the environment? Yes. So this is a, a regional synod that was also brought together under the shadow, so to speak, or sort of under the, the, the guidance of the Pope's encyclical, uh, Laudato Si, which he published in 2015, which has at its heart integral ecology. So that then became another one of those key themes here of how we implement uh, certainly Pope Francis's vision, but also the church's vision of an integral ecology in the Amazon and also providing pastoral care. Now, the two... The two things don't seem related to me. <laughs> I mean, I know that, that it's very hard to evangelize a region, as we described. Right. Although they, presumably the church has been trying to do this since 15-something, right? Since yes, I think that would be fair. Yeah. <laughs> it's not something new. Well, They're... the question was asked on a number of occasions. So, so essentially, the, the Amazon much like Latin America, was Catholic for about, oh, 500 years, mm-hmm. uh, really from the time sure. that the <laughs> the Spanish arrived, that Our Lady of Guadalupe in particular. Now, Our Lady of Guadalupe... Sort of kept, opened the floodgates of uh, evangelization. Uh, of evangelization and conversion. So the Amazon was essentially Catholic for 500 years. What happened? What went wrong? And diagnosing that, I think, is one of those big questions that continues uh, to trouble all of us as to why, for example, the the Pentecostal movement has been so successful in the Amazonian region. Now, one of the reasons that is often given by those who are concerned about this sort of thing is the presence of liberation theology, Mm -hmm. that in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and even into the 80s, liberation theology, which ties together some principles of Catholic teaching with Marxism, going to uh, say it's a communist. Uh, yes. Arg. And, and, <laughs> and I mean, I know with your background in, in Florida and, and Cuba. Your, your family history, uh, you are very much aware of the problems of, of Marxism yeah. and, and of false images and ideas of liberation, And which is why uh, then Cardinal Joseph Rotzinger issued several key documents in helping the church to understand what is liberation theology. But it, it had its impact. It did a great deal of damage in Latin America. And we're still picking up the pieces from it. You know, it's funny. I, I lived for over a decade in Colombia, one of the countries that includes the Amazon region, and never could get to the Amazon because it's super hard to get there. Um, <laughs> nor, but, nor do you want to go. Well, no, I actually would. <laughs> you I, would? I love that. I love seeing the, the diversity you of the country. You haven't seen the mosquitoes. No, you just <laughs> I remember once we were in the coast and everyone just got devoured um, by mosquitoes. But but the you're absolutely right, Matthew, that the issue of um, Catholics falling away from their faith, especially in countries that have been historically culturally Catholic, right. is a challenge. And my personal opinion, it's um, there's a dynamism that's been lacking in the church in Latin America, and we can see it in the church in Europe. And... Um, it struck it. It saddened me mm-hmm. that instead of talking about how to reinvigorate an apostolic zeal, it was uh, there was a lot of uh, folks kind of basically throwing their hands up and thinking we needed to think about something new instead of going back to what, right. now, what was done the so new well. Evangelization, uh, which is one of those great projects, so you can all go all the way back to Pope Paul VI. We've talked about him a few times in Evangelii Nunciandi. 
uh, one of his great exhortations of his pontificate where he called for this kind of new, renewed missionary zeal. We had it especially in the pontificate of Pope Benedict XVI. And Pope Francis and Evangelii Gaudium also called for us to go out. Mm-hmm. Now, that the problem that we have is that in parts of Latin America, and this is also true in North America and in Europe, mm-hmm. the kind of dynamism that you, to use your term, uh, is lacking. It's a, it's a crisis of confidence, but it's also a crisis in faith. And what we need is the old evangelization. And, and this is no insult to the new evangelism. What I mean is that it works every time it's tried mm-hmm. uh, to proclaim Christ Jesus. Because it's true. Because it's true. <laughs> and one of the, the questions that also emerged uh, in the run-up to the Amazonian Synod was this idea of we need to have a church with an Amazonian face. Now, that's a, it's a valid question. But the same question was asked with just a different tweak about 100 years ago. And that was how do we have a church in Africa mm-hmm. that has an African face? And but the, does the, it? I'm sorry to interrupt, but doesn't the church, hasn't the church always been able to embrace every culture that it meets and, and infuse the culture that it finds? That's right. Right? With, with, the, with the gospel uh, message and keep that face. I exactly. mean, anyone who's traveled anywhere can see the Catholicism operating on all these beautiful different— um, Well, historically, that has always been the case. Uh, if you look at the Roman Empire— uh, it was a process of enculturation. It was a process also of purification of culture. Purification, mm-hmm. yeah. A recognition that uh, all cultures have something in them uh, that is good. But we also have to recognize uh, that all cultures have things in them that do need to be purified. Mm-hmm. And a, a, an effective enculturation means that we are embracing that, uh, but also not losing sight of who we are as Catholics and how we proclaim and what we proclaim as Catholics. Well, Matthew, we're going to drill down on that, but we have to go for a break. But I, we, I really want to drill down on that and how the Amazon suddenly is different from how the Catholic Church has been doing things for the last many hundred years. Welcome back, friends, to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, and I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, joined in studio today by my legal eagle colleague at the Catholic Association, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer, and our good friend from EWTN, Matthew Bunsen, who's helping us understand a little bit about synods, particularly, as we broke off a moment ago, the Amazonian Synod. We were talking about enculturation, the way that the church um, has always traditionally um, encountered new cultures, uh, purified them, elevated them, infused them with gospel values. And my question for Matthew is, how is the Amazon different? What what makes the Amazon such a special place that we have to have new rules for <laughs> priests and uh, their wives, for instance? Well, and you've just asked the very question that people asked for well over a year in the in the run-up to the Amazonian Synod. What makes this place so special that we do have to set aside some of the things that we do as a church? And I think the answer is it's not. Uh, One of the real points of contention among a number of the participants, and these are the bishops who are in attendance, and let's bear in mind that this is not a full synod of bishops, so it's not the whole church or representatives of the whole church. This is about 185 hand-picked bishops 
from the region as well as a series of experts. So this is like a subset of a subset of the bishops of the church. And mm-hmm. that's important. That is important. As we have any conversation about the final document and what their final recommendations were. So the contention was that the Amazon is special because of the immense challenges that it poses to the church pastorally because of far-flung communities that uh, are so isolated uh, that uh, they need special pastoral practices as well as uh, the uniqueness of the Amazonian region with its culture. And so one of the recommendations, we'll talk more about this, was the so-called Amazonian right with everything that that would imply. The argument against that is... that a is, liturgical right? Mm-hmm. That's going to be the question. We'll, we'll uh, have to see if, in fact, that does develop. Mm-hmm. But what they're saying essentially is that this place is so unique and there's so many pastoral and ecological challenges that we have to treat this as a special case. Now, historically, uh, to the point of uh, the, the question of isolated communities, one small historical example is that the, the variety and, and the diversity and the sheer number of priests that we still enjoy in the United States is actually a historical anomaly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Historically in the United States, we have not had an abundance mm-hmm. of priests. It was necessary for priests to ride for weeks uh, to communities far flung across. In the, the West, especially, In right? the West, yeah. Wait, and now we have helicopters. And now we have helicopters, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and mush dogs and anything else we need. So why then? And Skype. Then Skype, well, yeah, hard to do you for confession or mass, though, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you can do some spiritual direction by Skype, I well, think. Well, you can, yeah. But, but to your point, there are always workarounds. And, and one of the things that was said by a number of participants at the Synod was, why are we trying to shatter what we do when, in fact, we're better off coming up with creative ways of doing what we've always done best, and that is to evangelize, to enculturate? And, and what are some of these things that you think are more in da- most uh, in danger of being shattered or, or the most valuable things? Obviously, the, the priestly celibacy, right? Exactly. Well, when, when you read the final report, uh, a couple of things jumped out immediately. The, the first is uh, that there was less stress on the ecology, even though he had heard about that throughout this document of trying to live Laudato Si, which makes sense uh, for the church, certainly integral ecology, the, what Pope Francis crafted in Laudato Si. From, certainly from a theological standpoint, it has many defenders and, and many supporters. I'm one. I'm a supporter. Exactly. What they did propose uh, on the pastoral side uh, first, one of the, the main recommendations, and I think you've already raised that, is are we going to in, or ordain what are called the very probati, and other mm-hmm. tested men, that these would be seasoned men within the community who are married uh, in these far-flung communities uh, to be able to provide the sacraments where it's almost impossible to reach. Now, the, the two problems that emerge with that is, first, the vast majority of the populations, even in the Amazon, live in the cities. Eighty mm-hmm. percent of the populations are, are not too remote. So, <laughs> so we're if, if the Amazonian region synod uh, was a subset of a subset, then the groups are talking about, and this in no way downplays the pastoral importance of providing sacraments to the Catholic communities that are far flung across the Amazon. You're still talking about a tiny percentage the of the population. Mm-hmm. The numbers are small. What then happens is uh, that uh, there's a genuine and understandable concern that because this is a pastoral crisis, that some other Episcopal conference, some other region in the world could seize on it, say, hypothetically, the Germans, who have already been floating. They have a problem (laughs) of vocations, so we need 
we are in a pastoral crisis, so yeah. why can't we also ordain? I mean, where is the church? Men? Where is the church not in a pastoral crisis? Isn't the history of the church a crisis? Everything it is <laughs> right. And it's, wait, and Matthew, who's going to test the wives? The the men have to be tested. Men, who's going to who's testing their wives? Well, that's. I mean, it, it goes back to a series of questions. Not to mention that the least of which is how are we going to prepare these tested men? And their wives. And their yeah. wives. Are, are you going to take him out of his remote community to give him the formation that he needs as a right. priest? What, right. What's going to happen when he's, you know, doing what would a normal seminarian would do? That That's would right. be a terrible. How many years formation does this person need? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that's the case, and how soon are you actually going to be seeing any sort of actual pastoral care? Mm-hmm. So this worry goes back to a phrase that um, I used a couple of times during the synod that Pope Francis has warned for a very long time about ideological colonization, uh-huh. this idea of imposing ideologies on different parts of the world. Uh, and those ideologies are invariably uh, bringing with them the culture of death. Mm-hmm. In exchange for, for, for uh, aid, my financial aid in many cases. Exactly. We but see that especially in Africa. What this we are in danger of, I think, in the Amazonian region is a kind of theological colonialism. Mm-hmm. So to pick up on something that Cardinal Robert Sara expressed during the Synod. Our he is, hero. <laughs> it should be everybody's. <laughs> that... We are in danger of turning the Amazonian basin, the region, into a laboratory for sort of theological experimentation in much the no, same it would be way terribly that it, unfair to them. it was. What a great point. It's, 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 it's a, a very important point. point. In much the same way that uh, liberation theology was a kind of laboratory back in for the Marxism. 60s and 70s yeah. for Marxism. And when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989, liberation theology declined almost immediately as well. Mm-hmm. But that movement then moved into what is now customarily called eco-theology, that many of the same radical ideas of liberation— Well, and this is all the quote-unquote intellectual elite— That's right. —of South America. Regular people don't believe in this nonsense. (laughs) But you can see the effect it's had uh, in terms of evangelization. Mm -hmm. The the, the priority is not on evangelization. it's, It's on liberation. At a time when the Pentecostal movement— all they preach is this yeah. idea of, the gospel of Jesus of, Christ. Yes, yeah. right. And then you combine that as well. What we're finding, if, if you would ask somebody, a bishop 20 years ago, a faithful Orthodox bishop in Latin America, what are his greatest worries? He, he probably would have said the Pentecostals poaching. Now the, the reality is in places like Argentina and Brazil and elsewhere is, yes, they are moving toward Pentecostals, but that is just a bus stop on the way toward being nuns, N-O-N-E-S-S, yeah. because that the zeal gives way toward a certain apathy and then leads toward well, and indifference. Well, it's, it's um, a momentary excitement. Right. And you can see, I mean, there's incredible coherence, which is beautiful, right? People are really altering their, their daily living That's right. in order to try to comply with some rules. And sometimes, you know, the, the pastors that come in don't have good formation and they're taking advantage of people. So I think, I think what you're saying, Matthew, is that these, um, the, the, these movements like liberation theology and echo, what did you call it? Echo theology. Echo theology. Yeah. That what they do is they remove the church from, from its basic function and its most winning function, which is the teaching of these noble well, gospel the salvation values. of souls, right? I mean, it's... That's right. Well, and, and the very attractive uh, proposition that, that all... That, that our lives should be ordered to these um, lovely, um, elevated uh, values and ideals, right? That's and, right. And, 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 and instead, a relationship with Jesus Christ. And a relationship, of course. Uh, and salvation through the church. And the, what you end up with really is, is a series of political categories and sociological programs 
that simply don't work. Uh, as Pope Benedict XVI stressed, uh, we are not an NGO. Mm-hmm. And we have to be very careful in a place like the Amazon of turning into one. Well, and you make a, a good point when Pope Francis speaks about ideological colonization. The church isn't an ideology. It's truth. Yes. It's the bearer of truth, right? It's the custodian of the truth. Right. And there needs to be a respect and an understanding of the uniqueness. But when we think just about like the spread of Catholicism by the Spaniards in the Americas in the beginning, there was some error, but a lot of great uh, conversions happened just because it was the first time things made sense. Absolutely. And there's also discussion then in this final document of a so-called Amazonian right, uh, which would be a specific right to the Amazon. Now, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, the, the phrase was used 100 years ago, why is it not possible for to have a church with an Africa that has an African face? Well, the, the question was asked uh, of that, of Cardinal Lorian Ragumbwa, who was the first cardinal appointed by uh, Pope Pius XII, the native cardinal in 1946. And his answer was that the reason that was the case is that for too often, Jesus arrived with a, a European face. So one of the stresses is an authentic enculturation meant that you present the truth and beauty and, and authentic teachings of the church, but then you build up your native clergy. And Christ then more and more had that African face. By imposing sort of these laboratory ideas on the Amazon, we're sort of short-circuiting that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that because you're, it's a temporal process. It's a process that happens over, over the development of faith in, in the community in an organic way. Right. And for Africa, there wasn't this idea of separating them from the church. No, you, you bring them fully into the universal church. And so one of the fears about an Amazonian right is first the practicality of it. There are 390 separate language groups and tribes hmm. that exist. How wow. one Amazonian <laughs> yeah. right is going yeah. to be able to help them. Now, one person did suggest, well, what you need is a common language. Hmm. What's out there that could be a common universal could it language? Be Latin? <laughs> it Latin? could be Latin. Could it be the language of the church? But something tells me that's not going to happen. So what, what does an Spanish. Amazonian right look like? And here's, again, where that the worry about a laboratory comes in again. When, when you, at the end of the three weeks, it was three weeks, there were recommendations made and there was voting that was done by the participants there. What were some of the key recommendations? And again, that's not anything that's going to change the church. These are right. counsel and advice being sent to the Holy Father to think about in light of these gatherings. Right. Where, where are we with those? A couple of the key recommendations, uh, some key takeaways. Uh, one is uh, the idea of the very pro-body that did pass. Uh, another was while they did not support in an open vote uh, for the ordination or creation of deaconesses, they did want the discussion of deaconesses to be passed along to whatever the commission was that, that Pope Francis established for the study and the life and history mm-hmm. of the church of deaconesses, whatever that means. Uh, they wanted that to be added into the discussion, and Pope Francis apparently is revisiting this question. Now, that's really finessing, I think, the whole question. The other recommendation was uh, the potential creation of an Amazonian right. Uh, they also want to do more indigenous seminaries to foster vocations. Uh, and uh, what they are hoping for is uh, that embrace of Laudato Si and integral ecology as the church helps uh, Catholic communities, but also communities at large, uh, to understand integral ecology better. Uh, and 
in terms of Laudato Si, that means that we understand our place in the universe, in, in creation, and understand as well that in the created order, we have a responsibility for it. And it's uh, been lost, I think, in some of the ideological discussions, uh, the importance of understanding uh, our role in creation, but also our role as stewards of created order. I was chit-chatting a couple days ago with our dear friend George Weigel, and he made an observation that I thought was very interesting about the environmental issues. And he said, first, we were, man was to dominate the earth. And then um, through Benedict XVI, the word stewardship, and it's not that uh, in conflict. But then recently there's a word of of being a guest Mm -hmm. of the earth, which is totally mind-blowing. But that's not not in Laudato Si in any way, shape, or form. Right. No, and that's the issue that's, I think, sneaking in the back door, right? Well, and this is where eco-theology itself becomes potentially really problematic. Because Uh, we can become unwelcome guests. Yes. Yes. (laughs) There are are those who openly describe humanity as a virus. A plague. A plague upon the earth. A plague on the earth that has to be eradicated uh, in order to save the earth. That's not Laudato Si. No. No, Did exactly. that have any play, or was that a voice that was quickly silenced in the... Well, in the Synod itself, uh, certainly in the Instrumentum Laboris, or the, the working document, there, there were real uh, worries that the, the language was very sociological in places, yeah. and that uh, some of that kind of ecological language was finding its way into some of the discussions. Uh, there was even the idea put forward at one point that uh, there, the Amazonian region could be a source of revelation, and that was never really fully explained what that meant. None of that more found than its the Bible. way. More, well, yes, exactly. More, <laughs> we got it all with the Bible, right? Yeah, and and, and uh, so you can imagine why it was that there were a number of bishops, uh, even outside of the Senate, who were expressing grave concerns about some of these discussions. Now, in the final document, you don't see that type of language. Good, and I, and I feel the Pope is very strong on that. He's. Yes. I, I thought I felt that the entire document of Laudato Si was uh, an attempt by the Pope to Christianize the ecological movement as it stands now, because the modern environmentalists are un- unfortunately tending to think of, of humans as pests. That's right. In order, If you can help move the modern ecological movement into a, a Catholic ethos, mm-hmm. I think you can accomplish a great deal of good. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's what Pope Francis was trying to do with Laudato Si. I, I really believe he was. Yeah. And, I, and I think he's succeeding. It's a, it's a process. And I'm glad that the – it sounds to me like the Amazonian Synod didn't derail that, that process of Laudato Si. So, Matthew, with, with the recommendations at the end of the Synod, what's the next step? The next step, uh, we've talked about him quite a bit here, and that's uh, Pope Francis. Uh, he said in his closing speech to the Synod that it is his hope to draft or to complete uh, an apostolic exhortation. Now, when Synods finish, one of the things that they do is uh, they hand off these recommendations and the Pope will write what's called the post-synodal apostolic exhortation, which uh, over the years a number of people have said it sounds like something you need medication for. <laughs> Uh, Talk about viruses. Yeah, I'm suffering from some post-synodal apostolic (laughs) exhortation. Pope Francis will draft. He hopes to have this published by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. So we'll have a a pretty good idea of what he's willing to accept from the Synod and what's going to be left behind. Now, we had a number of representatives in the Synod that are from the church here in the United States. They came back along with you and had another gathering of the bishops. They did. The American bishops. And the, the key thing, you were there. I was uh, in oh. Baltimore. Uh, the key event uh, for the USCCB's oh, meeting. Let me say it. Let me say it. I'm so excited about it. 
I was going to say the election of Archbishop Gomez. <laughs> Archbishop Jose Gomez, the Archbishop of Los Angeles, uh, who had been vice president, uh, he won with one of the largest uh, majorities ever in the election of a USCCP president. I'm a, a huge fan of his. I'm an mm-hmm. admirer of we his are work. Too. He is not just a shepherd of the largest archdiocese in the United States, but also one of the largest in the world. He is the first Latino to be elected mm-hmm. president. He's the first immigrant. But that's not just ticking a box on the part of the USCCB. I, I, you can make a very strong argument, because I, I really believe it's true, that he is the ideal person right now for the conference, not just heading into an election year. That's sort of narrow thinking uh, to try to frame everything in political categories, but because he is genuinely a bridge builder between the United States and Latin America. Mm -hmm. He is a bridge builder as well with the type of civility and discourse that we need to have today. Yes, yes, especially on immigration. He's so good on immigration. Well, and one of the things that I most loved, first, he strikes me as an incredibly humble person, right? So in that respect, he wears the authority well. Um, But he also, in, in a lot of his statements afterwards, both showing incredible gratitude, were, was this important sense of his role as pastor, like you were saying. Absolutely. And, um, and his profound, I guess, um, smallness before the grandeur of the Blessed Sacrament and, and the, the greatness of God. And, and, and he embodies uh, the virtues, uh, three in particular when I have watched him over the years. One is prudence, mm-hmm. this great exercise of prudence, but also of temperance, of, of patience, uh, but also of justice in everything that justice actually means. And I hate to think I hate to talk about the church as having a right or left because <laughs> it's a church. It's not it's not a it's not parties, political parties. It's not parties. an ideology. It's not an ideology, but I, I feel that he bridges uh, he connects he connects people who feel themselves on the right or the left in a in a really spectacular way. He has so much integrity. He does. And it's someone that everyone can respect. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Matthew. I, I wish that we could keep this talking for another yeah, we had, two hours. We I had feel plans like, to have three more hours of conversation. <laughs> I feel that we barely scratched the surface. Well, um, I'd love to come back. Well, it thank would you. be great. You'll have to come back again. Thank you for joining us, Matthew, on, on Conversations with Consequences. It's a privilege. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org to subscribe to the podcast and the media clips. You can go to that website and find both. This week, as is customary... Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily on this coming Sunday's gospel. Please stay tuned for Father Landry and do look up his daily homily, written and audio, on his website, catholicpreaching.com. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us all this Sunday, on which the Church celebrates the end of the liturgical year with the solemnity of Christ the King. The dialogue we'll enter into is one that took place on Calvary. The first dialogue was provocative. Soldiers, chief priests, passers-by all cried out, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
the thief on Jesus' left reviled him, saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save us, in your, save yourself and us. But Jesus didn't respond to their derision with a direct response in words, but with silence, prayer, and mercy. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But then there was another conversation with the thief being crucified on his right. He turned to Jesus and said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied to him, Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. The latter conversation is one of the most incredible dialogues of all time, one in which we're called to echo the prayer of the good thief. Thousands of times a year, we pray, Thy kingdom come. As we prepare for the solemnity of Christ the King, it's important for us to ponder what type of kingdom we're really praying for so that we might enter into it, dwell there, and rejoice. When Jesus inaugurated his kingdom, it had nothing to do with the expectations of almost anyone at the time. The last thing Jesus looked like as he hung upon the cross on Good Friday was a king. He was bathed in blood, not royal purple. He was hammered to a cross, not seated on a throne. He was crowned with thorns, not with gold and diadems. To ridicule him and Jews in general, Pilate had ordered that an inscription in three languages be placed above his head. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You can almost hear the laughs throughout the centuries. Rather than pay him homage, most just mocked him to put on a show and come down from the cross, as if he was some type of professional wrestler about to make a dramatic comeback. Only visible force was a demonstration of kingly power they could comprehend. For most Jews at the time, Jesus' crucifixion was proof that he was precisely not the long-awaited Messiah King for whom they had been waiting for centuries. The Jews anticipated that the descendant of King David would use power to subjugate all those who made themselves his adversaries. Not that he would take their abuse and die a horrible death to save his abusers. They were totally unprepared for a king who would serve at all, not to mention to the point of death. The Romans were likewise unprepared for a king like Jesus. When Pontius Pilate interrogated him, he asked, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, My kingship is not of this world. If it were this world, my servants would be fighting that I not be handed over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate retorted, So you are a king. And Jesus replied by describing more specifically what type of king he was and what type of kingdom he was establishing. For this I was born, for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who hears the truth hears my voice. The Romans thought that kingship meant having the power to crucify or pardon. They thought it was associated with force. Jesus taught it was associated with truth. And even the apostles had a false idea of what it meant to be in the service of the king. We see this throughout the gospel, that they were competing against each other for the greatest positions in the messianic administration they imagined Jesus would establish on earth. After John and James got their mother, how pathetic is that, to go up to Jesus to ask him to do whatever she asked and to grant that her baby boy sit on Jesus' immediate right and left as he began his kingdom. Jesus used it as a lesson for all who are hungering after that same worldly power and authority. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it, and their great men exercise authority. But it shall not be this way among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. That is Jesus' kingdom. To enter into his kingdom 
to be his right hand, to be his cabinet ministers, means to be willing to give our life as a ransom for God and others, to serve rather than be served, to give rather than get. But Jesus' kingdom and true regality was not lost on everyone that day. The criminal on Jesus' right, at arguably the worst moment of his up-to-then bad life during his excruciatingly painful public execution, had the ability to see how special the one being crucified beside him was. The good thief could understand his own body, the incredible biting pain that Jesus would have been experiencing a few feet away, and he could see that that pain had not gained the upper hand on Jesus. He was able to see that for him, to reign is to serve, to reign is to love, to reign is to give witness to the truth, to reign is to forgive. The good thief saw that love, mercy, service, and truth incarnate was triumphing beside him. He grasped what almost everyone else missed, that Jesus, mysteriously, through his suffering and death, was not about to lose a kingdom, but to establish one. He wasn't about to experience an ignominious defeat, but a glorious victory. So with faith, he turned to the malefactor in the middle, who would breathe his last even before the thief would, and humbly begged Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was asking a dying man to remember him, something that would only be possible if the thief realized that the dying man would somehow still live and be capable of remembering. And the king turned to him and promised that he would do so much more than remember him. With the largesse befitting the most magnanimous monarch, he declared that he would take him with himself into the eternal kingdom of paradise. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote in the Eucharistic hymn, Peto quod petivit latro penitens. I ask for what the good thief asked for. This is what we ask for when we pray, Thy kingdom come. It means to seek to be with Jesus, not in a generic way, but to be with him in giving witness to the truth, even if we should have to die for it. To be with Jesus in laying down our life in service of others. To be with Jesus in suffering and death, even on the cross. The ancient Christians used to say, Reniavit alinio Deus, God reigns from the cross. To say, Thy kingdom come. To seek to enter his kingdom. is to reign with him by living with him a cruciform life. A life of true sacrifice out of love for God and others. This is what we celebrate on Sunday. God bless you. Thank you so much, Father Landry, for another wonderful little homily that prepares us so well for this coming Sunday's Gospel. Unfortunately, it's time to say goodbye. We've had an amazing show with Matthew Bunsen and talking about the Amazonian Synod and also um, the recent election of uh, Archbishop Gomez to the USCCB, which made me very happy as the mother of a large Hispanic-American family. Well, and Gracie, I was just thinking... Um, the seven of my ten at home, six were born in, in South America, and the one that wasn't is actually more Colombian than all the rest really? of them. And, and what a great um, point of honor for them to be able to not only understand and appreciate um, the leadership of Hispanics in the, the church here in the U.S., but also understand the universal um, reach of the church, whether it's in the Americas or here in North America— you know, it's and that's the part, part that's of. exactly that's exactly the part that resonates with me that um, our children, because they come from because they're because they're from, you know, a, a, a variant culture, right? In the, within the United States, they're able to see this universe, universality of the church mm -hmm. and the way the church, uh, you know, sort of crosses over all these different barriers and, and the church doesn't see differences mm -hmm. of, of race or location or geography or even citizenship. And that's 
That's really fabulous. We're really excited about that at home. And I'm sure you are, too, at your house. Yeah, no, it's crazy town. We're super, um, it, it, and even though there are trials and tribulations um, going on in the church and in our homes and in our neighborhoods and everything else, I think if we cling on and are faithful, and um, I keep going back to that phrase, be still. <laughs> we just need to be still. Pray more um, and also be the light for people and, and be smarter. Learn what's going on in the church um, so that when people do ask questions, whether it's the tia or, or a daughter or son, we can have a calm and patient um, and well-informed answer. That's so true. It's always, we have, to be, we have to be that light for others. Well, be sure, listeners, be sure to subscribe to the podcast of our show wherever you get your podcasts. And do us a favor, rate and review the show on your podcast app. It helps like other people. Stars. Always five stars. <laughs> <laughs> it helps other people find our show. And thank you for listening to Conversations with Consequences, the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. 